The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel, chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it but will itself endure forever. <clears throat> you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you are able to reveal this mystery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So two weeks from tomorrow, Lord willing, they're going to start clearing the land for new building. And I make this commitment to you. We will not put light switches along the bottom of the back wall where people can lean against them and turn the lights off in the middle of the service. So if you're wondering what kept that light show, not intentional. That wasn't like designed to highlight anything in the music. It's they for some reason place light switches about 18 inches off the floor that if you lean against, it turns off just some of the lights. We're not going to do that. It's my commitment to you. There are currently 196 countries in the world. The smallest is Vatican City, which is about 109 acres, has a population of about 510 people. The largest, at least by land mass, is Russia, which covers 11% of the land on the planet. The largest population, it's, it's close between China and India, both have just under 1.5 billion people. The newest country is South Sudan, which declared their independence on July 9, 2011. There's a lot of debate about what the oldest country is, and that's because of the rise and fall of empires within countries. In places where people have lived for thousands of years, the history is often complex as as different groups rose to power at different times. At times, those groups, as they came to power, divided the country. Think of Israel during the time of Solomon or after the time of Solomon. Sometimes they subdued and enslaved other peoples and brought them under, under their kingdom, into their country. Now, as Americans, our, our, nat- our national history is, a little, is definitely shorter and more straightforward, though prior to the birth of the United States, there were many different kingdoms, empires that, that claimed various parts of the continent. Even since 1776, the size of the U.S. has been fluid, right? It started with 13 original colonies, all placed along I-95. Not sure if it was there then, but all along I-95, and it slowly spread to 50, 50 states and 14 territories. So if you, if you stepped back right now and you took a, a snapshot of the globe, what you would find is 196 countries, 196 national governments. But what if you looked at that same snapshot 50 years ago? Well, you'd find some different countries, different governments. Think about how much different even our country looked in 1972. What if you took that same snapshot 500 years ago? Right? It, would, it would almost be unrecognizable. If you thought about it 5,000 years ago, like I wouldn't even know where to begin, how to comprehend it. So during that time, how many different countries, how many 
different people groups, how many different governments have there been since the dawn of human civilization? Now, how many of those governments have been good? And how would you even go about trying to answer that question? I mean, some of them may have started good. Did they end good? When did they go bad? I mean, how would you even quantify what happened? Now, now the reason I'm asking all these questions is because what, what I want you to do for just a moment here is I want you to, to try to think beyond our own circumstances. I want you to think what it means to be a Christian in a different country than the one you live in. Like maybe, maybe it's a country where a government is actively hostile to Christianity. Or, or maybe it's a country that simply has a recognized state religion. Or maybe it's a country that claims to be Christian but makes evil policies. The purpose in doing this is for us to think about how hard it is to balance Christian identity with national identity. So I want you to think about what we've studied so far in the book of Daniel. You have these four Hebrew youths. You have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are trying to live faithfully as followers of the one true God, immersed in the life, the culture, and the government of a society that is hostile and mocks and belittles that God. Like that, that has to be difficult, right? I think of German Christians in the 1930s. Like they, they faced some difficult decisions as Hitler rose to power. If you've read at all about that time, you know there was a lot of debates within the church how to respond to what was happening. What was their responsibility? Should they be working behind the scenes to, to try to collapse this wicked government? Should they resist the political power and, and stand up to these evil policies? Should they go along quietly? Should... How can they live faithfully without compromise in, in this climate and culture they found themselves in? What does it even look like? So Christians, as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. We're citizens of an earthly kingdom and we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And balancing our responsibilities as dual citizens is not easy. It wasn't easy in Babylon. It wasn't easy in Nazi Germany. It's not easy in America. Now, the book of Daniel doesn't give us answers to all of these difficult questions that come from living in a modern-day Babylon. But what it does do is it provides us a framework that helps us start to answer those questions. So here, as we this morning look at the second half of chapter 2, I want to show you a couple foundational principles, how to live faithfully as a Christian and as a citizen of the earthly kingdom in which God has placed you. Now, before we look at the first principle, let's, let's read more about King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So you remember where he left off last, last week. Nebuchadnezzar, the young, powerful ruler of Babylon, is unable to sleep because he's had a dream. And he calls his wise men, his court, his magicians, all of his, all of his counselors together, and he says, tell me not simply the interpretation, tell me the dream, otherwise I'll dismember you. And Daniel comes to the rescue. He says, I will give you the answer to the dream I will give you its interpretation. So we pick it up here as Daniel recounts Nebuchadnezzar's terrifying dream. Look at verse 31. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. 
As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel here is able to recount the king's dream, just as the king demanded, and he's able to include all of the, the small details included in the dream. Right? God is the one, we learned this last week, who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and so now he gives Daniel both the dream and its interpretation. So as Daniel begins to interpret this dream for the king, we find the first foundational principle for Christians living in Babylon. Here it is. Human kingdoms come and go. Human kingdoms come and go. So Daniel begins by reminding Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one who sets up kings and he sets up kingdoms. That all of Nebuchadnezzar's power and glory, which seemed immense, was simply his by virtue of the fact that God placed him in this position of power. So I want you to listen to what Daniel does here. He affirms Nebuchadnezzar's authority while simultaneously ascribing ultimate authority to God. Look at verse 36. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king over other kings. Now this is true, because He had subdued smaller nations like Israel, and he literally had kings who would send him tribute. And so he was the king over other kings. He has substantial military might, economic power. His capital city is dazzling in beauty. And so the glory and majesty of his kingdom is represented by this golden head on the statue. Now, before we get further into the interpretation of this dream... I think we need to just sort of stop for a second, make sure we really understand the point Daniel's making, that God sets up kings and kingdoms, that God ordains governments and he appoints government leaders. Now, now I think for us to understand that, we we need to understand what what we mean when we talk about a kingdom or a government. And what we mean is the collective ordering of society. That's what a government is. It's a collective ordering of society. I know that's, a, that's too much of a definition for Sunday morning, so let me illustrate it for you. When Tom Hanks' character in Castaway washes up on the beach, right? he's there by himself. Wilson doesn't count. It's just a volleyball. He's, he's there by himself. And so since he's there by himself, he sets all of the rules. Right? He says, okay, this is when I'm going to eat. This is what I'm going to eat. When a package washes up on shore, he decides, am I going to open it? Am I going to use it? Like, and if he feels like changing his mind the next day, he can change his mind because it's just him. What if one other person made it safely to the island? Right? All of a sudden, you, you've got to figure out a way to work together. So, so Tom Hanks says, hey, we should eat every day. And the other person says, I think we should eat every other day just to make sure we have enough food. So so how do they decide to order their society on the island? Like in in order to function well, to not kill each other, they they make some sort of rules or laws and then they operate according to those rules. Now now imagine that not two castaways survive, but 20 castaways or 50 castaways, right? Now, Now you not only need more laws, but 
you need some process to make laws and some process to determine, are these fair laws? How do we enforce these laws? And, and that's all government is. It's, it's a society that has collectively or together ordered itself. And so at the, the heart of government or kingdoms is the issue of authority. Who has the authority to order society, right? So do I have the authority at home to determine what our society will do? Even, I have the internet, so probably, right? No, I don't, have, I don't have this type of authority. I can write whatever I want, but I don't have the authority. Are there those who do have this authority? Who has the authority to make laws? Who has the authority to enforce them? And so generally how we think about government and kingdoms and authorities is we think about how people come to power. So maybe, you know, you think about your history books and kings coming to power. How do they come to power, right? They, they get a bigger army. So the person with the biggest, most effective army all of a sudden has the authority. They establish their government. Maybe in a free people, we say, well, it doesn't happen by military authority. It happens by the will of the governed, the consent of the governed. We decide together who will lead us, how we'll order the society. But when we think about it, about the origin society, we need to actually understand what is being taught here, that authority belongs to God and God gives it to governments. God gives it to kingdoms as he sees fit. And this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. So when Adam and Eve were created in the garden, what God said to them, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into this world I've made. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. So you're, you're populating the earth. You're filling the earth. And I want you to subdue it, to, to bring order and stability to it. And so what God was doing in one sense was he's creating the first government, investing in them the authority to order or govern their society. Now in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, he's going he's gonna to teach Christians exactly what we see here is that all authority belongs to God and so that governing authorities exist only because God has instituted them, that God God has all the authority and he loans it out temporarily to governments and he also takes it from them. So think about what Jesus said. Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Who's Pilate? He's, he's a representative of the mighty Roman Empire. Great power. And theirs came through the sword, right? They dominated other nations. And Jesus is on trial and, and he, you know, has he violated the laws of this society? Will he face the penalty for it? And he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. Above there is not the Roman emperor. Above there is God himself. So Jesus says, whatever authority you have over me as a citizen here is solely because it was granted to you by God. Nebuchadnezzar is being taught this lesson here. He won't learn it. So jumping ahead a little bit. doesn't learn it very well, so he, he gets taught it in a much more painful way in chapter 4. This is what Daniel says there. He says, the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he wills. And, and so when we think of human kingdoms and human governments, we understand this is part of God's mandate or his command to his creatures to fill, subdue, and govern his world. In fact, I would say there, verse 38, the inclusion of wild animals and birds of the sky, it's sort of odd. It actually is there to remind us of this initial command of God that after he made the animals and after he made the birds in the sky, then he appointed mankind to govern his world. 
And so we, we shouldn't look at human governments as something that's inherently bad. Their intention and purpose is positive. But what we see is that they don't last. That none of them will. Ever. That Babylon won't last. Neither will its replacement. Neither will its replacement. Look at verse 39. He says, after you. Oh, there's mighty Babylon. Ended in two words, after you. There will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, yet somehow defeats him. And then another, and a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. The mighty kingdom must last forever, right? Well, a fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron. For iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. Verse 41, you saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay. Verse 42, and the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. And so one after another, human kingdoms will rise and human kingdoms will fall. Human governments are like the Lego creations of a toddler, right? They walk into the room, look at the tower I built, mommy, Whom? Now it's in pieces. See, this dream, what it is revealing is how inherently feeble all human governments, all human kingdoms are. Clearly, I mean, just think about the statue. Picture the statue in your mind for a second. This statue is top-heavy. I mean, it's... You don't put a heavy head of gold on these brittle feet of clay and iron. Not only that, like, these feet are made of two substances that don't mix. So that no sculptor would attempt to pass this off as, as one of his prized creations because he knows the moment it gets put in the place of honor in a house, it's going to start to wobble and fall. One writer describes the point of this part of the dream. He says this, he says, kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and tyrannies and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. He goes on to tell the story of a town in Estonia who decided they were going to auction off their statue of Vladimir Lenin. So this was after Estonia declared independence from USSR. It had this statue, this powerful, intimidating leader, this one everyone feared, this one who, who ruled with an iron fist, who was dead. Used to have this prominent position in the town square. Everything was built around this powerful leader, and it has become part of a community fundraiser. This is the end of all great and powerful leaders in the kingdoms they lead. Though, we do see this, that while in power, some of these kingdoms, some of these governments are brutal. The fourth kingdom from the dream, notice, is described as a kingdom that crushes and smashes and shatters other kingdoms. But, what's their end? It's the same as the previous kingdoms, no matter how powerful, how impressive, how expansive, they too will be replaced. Notice verse 35, it says, all four kingdoms will be shattered, become like chaff that's blown away by the wind. Now, chaff, it's a, it's a part of the grain. So what they would do is after collecting the grain, they would sort of toss it up in the air and the wind would blow the worthless part, that was the chaff, away and be left with just the valuable piece. So he said it's worthless, they're going to be blown away by the wind. More than this, this actually reminds us of some previous scripture, Psalm 1 and 2. In Psalm 1, we're told, 
that those who are righteous are like a tree planted by the rivers of water where the, the wind blows, the hurricane comes, and this tree doesn't move. But the wicked, it says, are like the chaff, which are blown away by a light summer wind. And then in Psalm 2, it says the nations, those leaders, those kings, these governments all conspire against God's king, his son, and they will be crushed, blown away by the wind. Daniel here in verse 38 identifies Babylon as the first of the four kingdoms. But notice that none of the others are mentioned by name. Now, we know, or at least we, we believe from the rest of the book that these are most likely talking about Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. We're going to learn more about that in the book. But I don't want us to miss this, that I think the omission of names here is important, that he only identifies one of them, which is Babylon. That's because Daniel is providing for us a theology of history, not a timetable of history. Right? As we, we discussed this in chapter 1, this is how we need to interpret the book of Daniel, that it talks about real places and real events and real people, but it makes them symbolic. And so at this point, Daniel is not concerned with the identity of the other kingdoms. He's concerned with the destiny of the other kingdoms. And here's the destiny. They will fall. All of them. No matter who they are. I don't need to identify them because all of them fall. Here's the second foundational principle in his interpretation. God's kingdom lasts forever. God's kingdom lasts forever. So when the kingdoms of the earth of the earth meet their end, the world does not vanish into oblivion. The final chapter in the story of the world is not sort of the dystopian future of science fiction or a young adult novel. There arises a kingdom unlike the other kingdoms. It's a kingdom that does not come crashing down. Look at verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Verse 45, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. And it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. So we notice about this kingdom that there's something unique about its origin. It doesn't, it doesn't arise from human design or human effort. Right? It, says, it says repeatedly, no human hand is part of its creation. So, so how do most kingdoms, how do most governments come about? Well, they come through some sort of what we would say normal process. Maybe it's a line of succession, right? Like one king or queen dies and they say, the king is dead, long live the king. Or maybe it's, it's voting where, where every certain year the, 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 the citizens gather together and they determine who will lead us. Maybe it's through a revolt. And what it's saying, this kingdom here, it comes apart from any of those sort of normal processes, that there has never been nor ever will be a kingdom like this one. So it's important that we understand this kingdom. This is the final kingdom. So we think about two images that it gives us. The first is a mountain. Verse 35, it says, This kingdom becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. So in other words, think about the contrast between earthly kingdoms, right? They're, they're this statue that's wobbly and is destined to fall, right? It's top-heavy, the earthly kingdoms. It says the kingdom, this kingdom is a mountain. Mountains aren't top-heavy, are they? 
Right? That's why they're stable. We think of mountains as things that don't go anywhere. And it says it's a mountain. So I want, you to, read, I want to read a few promises that Isaiah made years before Daniel was taken to Babylon. In Isaiah 2, verse 2, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Then Isaiah 11 says, An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. Why? For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And so, A kingdom that becomes a mountain directs our thinking to God's promise that He is going to establish a kingdom that that never ends, but a, a kingdom where all of the effects of sin are reversed. And the nations come to Him. People from every tribe and nation come to Him and worship Him there. So it's talking about this This kingdom that surpasses all other kingdoms. But how does this kingdom come? How does God's kingdom, His his never-ending kingdom where all sin is gone and all sorrow is banished, how how does this happen? Well, that starts as a stone. That's the second image. Listen to Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. So there's a stone, we're told, that's rejected by those in charge. So rejected by some form of human government. And it becomes the cornerstone, the foundation of a globe-encompassing, unending mountain kingdom. Do we know who this stone is? We know the stone is Jesus Christ. The rejection of Him is His death. His selection as the cornerstone is His vindication through the resurrection. Jesus makes this clear. When He's talking to some religious leaders in His day, the the government officials around Him, and He's warning them about their rejection of Him as the Messiah, and He says, "I, I am the stone which becomes the cornerstone. The Apostle Paul, I repeats this identification when explaining the unbelief of Israel. He says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so the kingdom of God is built upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But notice verse 35 tells us it begins small and unimpressive. But it grows until it fills the whole earth. This is reminiscent of some parables Jesus told, one particular one. He talks about a mustard seed, so a small little seed. And he says the kingdom of God is like this little seed, small, unimpressive. It says, but when it's buried in the ground, from it comes this tree with its limbs that spreads. And it says, and the birds come, and they, the birds in the sky come and flock, and they land there and rest in it. So you see what? The kingdom that starts small with the coming of Jesus as a baby continues to grow until he returns and remakes and restores all creation. His kingdom is the reverse of all of these human kingdoms. His kingdom has humble beginnings, but they give way to a glorious, unending future. So one day, 2,000 years ago, there was a young girl. An angel appears to her and says, in spite of you being a virgin, you will have a baby. There will be no, if you will, human hands involved in the process. And he says, but that son you have will be king over a kingdom without end. When that son grew up, 
and became a man, here's what he told people. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When the religious leaders opposed him, he assured them that his power came from God and he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He warned his followers that even though death and hell would oppose them, that his assembled people were built upon a rock that could not be overcome. And he was leaving them the keys to the gates of his kingdom where they were to usher people in. Before he returned to heaven, he commanded the disciples to be witnesses of the good news of the kingdom until the news reaches the very ends of the earth. And when he comes again, I want you to hear what all heaven sings. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of God, built upon the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son Jesus, will one day fill all of creation. All earthly kingdoms will be blown away, and His never-ending, never-failing kingdom lasts forever. But within these wonderful promises about the kingdom of God, we find a repeated warning. Because we're told that those who refuse, refuse to obey the king, those who reject his rule, are crushed by the stone. So friends, the message of Jesus is in one way very simple. He says, repent and believe the good news. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Is your life built upon the stone that cannot crumble? Or are you standing in opposition to it? See, the the stone is either a marvel or it's a terror. The foundation of your life or the instrument of your judgment. Will you repent of your self-rule, your attempts to establish for yourself your own little kingdom? And will you enter the kingdom of Christ? So human kingdoms come and go, but God's kingdom lasts forever. I want to consider two ways this impacts our life, both today and every day. Here's the first one. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's a complex man because right, he, what he does after this dream is he, he acknowledges God's authority, that he is the supreme ruler over all gods and kings, and then he bows down before God's representative, Daniel. Listen to what he says, verse 46. It says he falls down face, face down, worships Daniel, gives order to present an offering and incense to him. And says to him, your God is indeed the God over all gods, the Lord over all kings, or master of kings. He's a revealer of mysteries, since you are able to reveal this mystery. And so, in one sense here, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God's position, but here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't swear allegiance to God. We'll we'll see this in the next couple chapters. In fact, the very next thing he does is he's like, oh, I'm not just the head of gold, I'm the whole thing. And he builds a mammoth, colossal statue of gold. And tells people, worship me. You know, in some ways, Nebuchadnezzar is very similar to those who followed Jesus around. They listened to his teaching. They witnessed his miracles. But ultimately, they would not submit to him as king. So, brothers and sisters, we must do what Nebuchadnezzar fails to do. We must swear allegiance to God and his kingdom above all earthly kingdoms. We are Christians before we're anything else. Christians before Americans. That means our brotherhood with Moldovan Christians and Indian Christians is far stronger than any purely national ties. It means we seek the spread of the kingdom of God over the welfare of any nation. In the the words of his disciples, we obey God rather than man. 
It means our identity as Christians comes before any other identity. You are a Christian before you're a Republican or Democrat or Independent. And practically what that means is that the way you treat and the way you talk to and about other people should be governed by the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, not by the example of some political figure or some cable news pundit. When someone meets you, here's what the overwhelming impression should be. This person is a follower of Jesus. So it means the way you treat someone should be the same regardless of their political or national affiliation. Do you realize that churches have split over politics? Churches have split over politics. Maybe that doesn't strike you as a strange and shocking statement. But if Daniel 2 is true, how could this happen? How, how could a group of kingdom citizens so elevate their earthly citizenship that they cannot worship and serve God together? Allegiance to anything over Christ is poisonous and hellish. How you view the world should be influenced by your allegiance to Christ, not by political or national interests. Now, I, I know it's an easy thing to say. That's right, Josh. I agree. But I, I think it's much harder to do. Let me, let me give you maybe a, a, something to think about. When you hear about a scandal in the life of a politician who holds a different political position than you, how do you respond? Do you gloat? Are you happy? Do you see this as an opportunity Or is your first thought, man, this weak, broken sinner made in God's image is in desperate need of grace? What is the lens through which you view the world? See, if you know Jesus and you have been rescued from sin and death through his sacrifice in your place, then the first and primary way you should view yourself and see the world is as a Christian. Like this is our controlling identity and should be our primary allegiance. Someday your earthly citizenship will end. It's going to end one of two ways. You're dying or your country's dying. But if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, that never ends. Here's the second thing. Our responsibility is to love our neighbors. Our responsibility is to love our neighbors. So what does Daniel do? He receives the king's gifts and promotions. Then he turns, he says, I'd I'd like you to place my three Hebrew friends into positions of influence. Why? Didn't they just learn that they're serving a failed state? I mean, they just heard this like, hey, Babylon, not going to last. So why why do this and not say, hey, let's binge Netflix? It's not going to work out anyway. Here's why. So listen to what God commanded his people that were taking captivity in Babylon through the, through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. He says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Think, think about what that means for a second. Gardens aren't instant. He doesn't say microwave a meal because you'll be back soon. He says plant gardens, something that takes long, live in them. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so they may bear sons and daughters. In other words, you're not going anywhere for a while. Multiply there. He says, do not decrease. Then this is shocking. He says to Israel in Babylon, pursue 
the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Wherever God places his people, he gives them the responsibility to love and serve others. And so Daniel and his three friends, serving in an evil, oppressive regime, use whatever power and authority they have to bless others and seek their good. I like how Christopher Wright put it. He said this. He said, the point is not merely that Daniel and his friends got a promotion, but also that they continued in the political government service of a king whom they now knew to be a head of gold on feet of clay. They went back to work. They turned up at the office next Monday. They didn't even go off to Bible college to develop their newfound spiritual gifts of prayer and prophetic visions. They simply got on with the job they had trained for. They stuck to their desks. And God used Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel to far greater impact on the king than if they had thundered like Amos or blazed like Elijah. God needs prophets, but God also needs people who understand the prophetic truth and then get on with life in the world God has put them in. So, brothers and sisters, God has placed you in this world, this community, this city, this neighborhood, this state, this area, and the impact that he wants you to make here is not dependent upon you holding a certain position. Like you, you don't have to quit your job and go to seminary to make an impact. You make God's kingdom your priority, and then you bring the values and priorities of his kingdom with you to your neighborhood and treat people as a kingdom of heaven treats people. You take them to your place of employment and there you live with an ethic and values and priorities that demonstrate that you belong to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. Now listen, I, I don't think this is easy. In fact, I want to say it's, I think this is really, really hard. I think it's very hard to wrestle with these dual identities that we, we are supposed to be here seeking the welfare of the place we live and yet it's our ultimate allegiance is not here. It's to the kingdom of God. I mean, Daniel and his friends certainly understand this struggle. I mean, think about this. They literally have two names. One name is Babylonian and one name is Hebrew and they're going like, in some ways, I'm both of these people. How does this work? I mean, how, how can you be a faithful Christian engineer in Fuquay? How can you serve Jesus and serve in Wake County schools? How can you enter your neighbor's really messy life without compromise? Like, these are tough questions. But, but here's, here's, what I, here's where I really want to encourage you, okay? You don't need to answer these difficult questions on your own. Daniel doesn't. Like Daniel's understanding of how to live without compromise in Babylon is shaped through prayer and Christian community. So, so here's what I'm just, you're here and I hope you're asking some questions about, well, what does this mean? I know there are some, some vocations where it may be even more difficult. How, how do you as a soldier is your foremost allegiance to God and not country while still being faithful? That's hard. But it's hard in all walks of life. How do, how do we do this? These are tough questions. Here's what I'm strongly encouraging you to do. Like, ask these questions over coffee with another member. Bring them up in your community group this week. 
Right? Come, come to men's breakfast where the topic's been like, how do, how do we enter the workplace as Christians? How does our Christian identity influence the way we view and do our jobs? Here's what I'm encouraging you. Let's, as a church, be brave enough and committed enough to God's kingdom to ask hard questions about what it means to be faithful right here where God has placed us. Your allegiance is to God's kingdom and your responsibility is to love your neighbor and we cannot compromise our identity or ignore our responsibility. Like Daniel, we need some God-given wisdom to integrate the two. I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis that stuck with me through the years. Lewis was an author, English professor who took his identity as a Christian seriously. In fact, Interesting, he became a Christian while he was already a professor and an author, and he didn't leave those to do something else. Instead, he, he thought deeply about what, what does it mean? How can, I, how can I serve faithfully where God has me with the gifts he's given me, with the responsibilities? How can I do this? So I, I like how he balances these two things, that he, there's our, our allegiances to Christ, but we love our neighbor. He, he said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Maybe we'd say it this way. All left their mark on this kingdom precisely because their minds were occupied with the kingdom of God. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Our allegiance to Christ's never-ending kingdom frees us to love and bless our neighbors in radical and life-changing ways. This is the lesson of Daniel 2. Will you pray with me? Father, we need real wisdom to discern how do we, how do we, how do we live out these dueling identities you have not called us to, to step out of this world. We will one day call us out of this world and into a recreated, reshaped, refashioned world where your worship extends everywhere. But until that time, you've not called us out of this world. We're to live here. We're supposed to seek the, the welfare of the place you place us, and yet our allegiance is not. Our allegiance is not here. And so help us to know how to balance these two, how to integrate these two realities. Help us to rely upon each other for insight and wisdom where we're struggling. Lord, help us, help us to be courageous enough to really consider what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom, but to be a faithful blessing to the Babylon that we live in. We need your help, Father, and so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.